Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a very good guest today, Eddie Badrina. He's the uh, CEO of Eden Green Technology. Uh, is the co- uh, co-founder as well of Buzz Shift, and we're going to talk about their vertical farming technology and uh, what they're about. So, Eddie, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me about how you got into this industry. It's for a lot of people, I guess it's unusual, and their I don't know their eyebrow would raise up when you talk to them. So, what's your background, and how did you get here? So, I, I took a circuitous route uh, to coming on board with Eden Green. Actually, my uh, career path can be divided into three chapters. The first was government. So I spent around six years with the federal government doing foreign policy, two years as President Bush's Asian American spokesperson. Then the next chapter was starting Buzz Shift, and that was a digital ad tech firm. Still exists, but my business partner and I bootstrapped it, started from scratch in 2010, sold it in 2016, bought it back 11 months later. And then proceeded to run it again. And while I was running that alongside him, this opportunity came up, and it was just too good of a too good an opportunity to to come run this uh, high growth ag tech startup. Uh, so I jumped to that in December of 2019. And funny enough, we sold Buzz Shift again for the second time a little bit after I left. Okay, so what, what's the difference between Eden Green and Buzz Shift? So Buzz Shift is ad like digital ads. And Eating Green is a vertical farming company. So very different. But the reason I came on Eating Green is because the lead investors needed someone who, one, knew how to run a startup in a lean manner, uh, knew all about burn rates, but more importantly, knew about go-to-market strategy, about product market fit, about sales strategy, building a sales team, and then going to market. So I came on board because the technology was there, there's a technological proof of concept. But what was missing was a coherent go-to-market strategy and a commercialization of the technology. And so I brought in a team and have built it up in the two and a half years since I've been on board, have raised money to build the commercial proof of concept that's up and running now. And so now we are in the growth capital phase. Well, so what is, uh, what does Eden Green do? I mean, you build, so, you use containers for your vertical farms or what, what is it? Yeah. So we, we're, we're known as a hybrid in the control environment, agriculture industry, CEA, as it's known, you've got two ends of the spectrum on one end of the spectrum are flat tray greenhouses. Uh, those are tried and true technology, usually out of uh, Holland or out of uh, Netherlands or out of France. And uh, those are, those are great automated flat greenhouses. Uh, the challenge with those uh, is that in order for that for them to get economies of scale that are remotely uh, appetizing to an investor, you need about 60 acres under roof. And that from a land perspective is too much land for the economics to make sense. 
uh, to be near to a population center. So while they can grow a lot of greens, it takes a lot of land and it doesn't solve for the supply chain issue that we're seeing. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, yeah. you've got vertical um, one, farms. Eddie, one quick part of clarification. So you need yeah. 60 acres worth of containers in order no, to no. grow to feed. Oh. So, so flat tray greenhouses are just like it sounds. They're greenhouses. So glass polycarb greenhouses, usually 24 feet tall. Uh, a flat tray greenhouse needs about 60 acres of that greenhouse to make it economically viable. What so, size uh, population? Uh, so a, uh, I'll call it a 60 acre flat tray greenhouse will produce, I don't know, uh, two, maybe maybe 25 million pounds of greens. So it'll it'll support a good sized city. Um, but again, it's so far away from the population centers, right? So on that much other, land, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, ton of land, right? But again, you you're not gonna find that anywhere near a population center. So your your transportation costs are still gonna figure in. So on the other end of the spectrum, you've got vertical farms. Vertical farms are usually inside some sort of warehouse, right? A building, either a new or renovated building. And those vertical farms are about 36 feet tall. And they can usually come in about an acre, an acre and a half under roof. The problem with those are, if you can imagine a warehouse full of greens, 36 feet tall, is it requires a lot of lights because they're basically stacked like a bunk bed, but 36 feet tall, stacks on stacks of greens. Well, those all need lights and lights are expensive to buy and they're expensive to operate. So an acre and a half greenhouse or sorry, an acre and a half vertical farm will usually uh, consume around 4 million kilowatt hours a month to grow those greens. That's like a data center. Oh, wow. So, okay. Right. So the, the operational expenses on that are they limit what can be produced in that greenhouse to really high end fixed cost types of greens, microgreens, herbs, strawberries, right? Something like that. The problem is that doesn't feed the vast majority of the population. So what we have come up with is actually a patented solution that provides verticality. So all the density of a vertical farm, but in a greenhouse. So it's using all the sunlight you could possibly use so compared to a vertical farm, an indoor vertical farm our size, we use one-tenth to one-eleventh of the electricity costs of those vertical farms. And then compared to a greenhouse, one of our greenhouses, because it's vertical, is equivalent in output to about five acres of a flat tray greenhouse. So all of a sudden, we can be both economical as well as close to the population centers. In fact, our business model is predicated on being within a mile, if not less, to a distribution center. So we virtually eliminate all the transportation and supply costs associated with both conventional farming as well as with flat tray greenhouses. What's the um, the profile of the buildings you use? Are they shipping containers or is it like a very tall vertical farm? Like what does it look like? It's a greenhouse. It's a it's vertical within a greenhouse. So you've mentioned shipping containers like four or five times now. And I think that's pretty, that's pretty normal for the average consumer. They think really small form factor, 
they think, okay, a shipping container, you know, costs $250,000 for one of these, this call like freight farms or box farms, I think is the other one called. Exactly, right. Right. Those are great if you're a nonprofit. If you want to feed a really small com- community, you know, they're great as a as an addendum to a community garden. They're not going to feed any sort of population mass at all. They're just not scalable. The economics don't make sense. They're expensive to run. They're just not, they're not going to scale to feed the vast majority of population. So I think the 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 container farms have done a good job of being novelty and of attracting attention, but in terms of actually solving population needs, they're not going to do it. Okay, so yours is a greenhouse, but somehow it's a lot more efficient. Is yes. it are your greenhouses like super tall or what? Yeah, without so giving away gr- proprietary info, you know, how do you get so much more juice out of it for some so yeah. little input? So our greenhouses are twenty four feet tall and an acre and a half under roof. So call it 63,000 square feet of grow space under roof. The How we do it, the secret sauce is literally we have a patented for design and usage, a patented tower that lets us grow the vast majority of that height and then packed really close together. It allows us to grow with up to 30 pounds per square foot per year out of one greenhouse. So if you sort of extrapolate, it's it's a lot of numbers, but basically we can produce in one acre and a half what a 30 to 35 acre farm would do in an open field. So we'll do we'll do 13 to 17 harvests a year, whereas most open field farmings will maybe do three harvests a year. So that's, that's how we're able to get to get the 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 volume out of these greenhouses because We've got these vertical towers that allow us to grow quickly and nutritiously. Where do you have them in production? Can people go visit them? Like where are they located right now? So uh, we've got two just outside of Fort Worth, Texas, and we're building two more. And we're raising our Series B right now to build six more. So these uh, these greenhouses are capital intensive. But once you have them established, because our grow times are so quick, uh, from flipping the switch on a greenhouse, we can actually have our first harvest in 30 days. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. How do you um how do you insulate them? I thought you know greenhouses that are made of glass or polycarbonate, even multiple layers, tend to have uh, you know difficulties with the thermal value of insulating them. Well, that's the great thing about sunlight is you want that you want all that heat. So uh, the actual the question you should be asking is how do you cool that down? Right? Even in right, well, even that, in right, a, at night even in the yeah. northern yeah even in the northern climate inside a greenhouse, it'll be about 70, 75 degrees. So that's another piece of our technology is 
that we control uh, what we call the microclimate around each plant spot. So we're really only concerned with controlling the air temperature, CO2 levels, airflow, water temperature, nutrient levels, all of those variables to grow a plant. We really only focus on the 12 inches around each plant spot. When you do that, what you're able to do is you're really only conditioning one fifth of the cubic volume of that greenhouse. So that makes us really, really efficient. It would be as if all of the folks who are listening right now, instead of having a central AC in their house, they had backpacks around them. And they were only, the backpacks kept them at a nice, crispy 67 degrees, but everywhere else in the house, it could be 40, it could be 80, could be 90, doesn't even matter because around them, they have the perfect climate. It's the same thing that happens in our greenhouse. It could be 40 degrees outside. It could be 80, 90 degrees outside. We're focused on the microclimate around each plant spot so that the net effect is, you know, we have 328,000 plant spots in one greenhouse. The net effect is in the wintertime, they act as heating radiators. And in the summertime, they act as cooling radiators. How do you create this microclimate and maintain it? Like, what does that look like around the plants? That's the, that's the proprietary nature of it. So each, the, the, the towers, the grow towers that we have allow water to run at such a rate that from top to bottom, there's no difference in water temperature and there's no difference in nutrient level from top to bottom as it flows down. So the plant in effect gets an all you can eat buffet 24, seven, 365. And then from an air control perspective, we've got uh, a way to uh, direct airflow to each individual plant spot so that it's consistent throughout the greenhouse from top to bottom, left to right, north end to south end. That's tough. It seems like there would be a trade-off in terms of getting the sunlight to a given plant. You know, that's another question too, is so 24 feet high, how many stacks or levels do you have of plants and how do you get light to the lower ones? Yeah. So. If you think about, um, I think probably in your mind, because it's, you know, probably maybe still formed on either indoor growing or container farms, you've got, I'll call it, uh, for lack of a better word, bunk beds, right? Um, so you've got bunk beds, you know, five, six, seven stacks of flat trays stacked on each other. So of course, one tray, if you put that in a greenhouse in the sun, the trays will block light from the ones below it naturally. But what if you turn those on its side and you had long rows of greens, long rows that were 18 feet high and 110 feet long, right? Well, if those rows are spaced five, six, seven feet apart, you get all the sunlight from top to bottom, and then you supplement it with grow lights, with with complementary LED lights, if you will, uh, which, by the way, natural like greenhouses, flat tray greenhouses have those LED lights as well, because uh, depending it's on it's a cloudy day or just part times of the season, you're going to need that those lights to get what the plant needs, which is known as daily light intake, the DLI of uh, for a plant. So we control for that DLI using both the sunlight that's given to us as well as complementing it with grow lights. And with your um, with your buildings being 24 feet high. Do you have zoning issues? And, you know, for any, in a given building, the south side of the building, I'm just picturing like a big glass building, I guess, or you know, yeah. a big glass, uh, it's called greenhouse. 
how do you manage, let's say, southern exposure versus northern, et cetera? And, and again, the height of the buildings with zoning. Yeah. So we're we're mostly because we're sub mile to distribution centers, we're in a light industrial zone. And by the way, most most warehouses are 24 feet tall. So we're no taller than any warehouse. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So we're no taller than any warehouse. We don't stand out any, you know, any more than a big box distribution center would stand out and we're in a light industrial zone. So doesn't apply, right? Doesn't matter. You, you probably look like those self-storage places where you could see into them. You see all the doors, but in yours, I'm guessing you could see into it and see all the plants, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it looks a heck of a lot nicer. I'm sure it makes the neighborhood <laughs> yeah. look better. Yeah. Huh. Um, it is It is definitely a, a novel sight when you drive up uh, to one of our greenhouses, for sure. So how do you deal with, again, the buildings themselves, the southern exposure versus northern, birds mm-hmm. pooping on it, you know, things running into the walls, et cetera? Yeah, you know, you'd be surprised uh, with that much under roof that's 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 clear. Birds pooping on it just doesn't matter. It it, it just doesn't. You're not going to have that that covering up the roof. You know, the the top the top clear layer of it that much. And then in terms of you know in terms of south side versus north side, again when when the entire greenhouse is glass or polycarb you're going to get sunlight. Now, does, do the do the greens on the south end get more lights down here in Texas? Yeah, they do, just the way it is. And so you plant differently for that, right? Uh, and so you have d- daily light intakes for the complementary grow lights that are different on the south end and then you do the north. Uh, and then on depending on the time of year as well. So we definitely account for that. But that's honestly, that's 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 a part of just running a greenhouse period whether you're running a vertical greenhouse like ours or a flat tray greenhouse like some of our peers are you guys growing hydroponically are you using soil or what what's the growing methods yeah so we our grow medium is hydroponics we use a type of hydroponics called nft hydroponics it's a called natural film film technique hydroponics and yeah, that looks like we, when they have those like white pipes with holes in them and plants stuffed in them irregularly spaced intervals and the the thin film of nutrient water goes down the pipe and the roots dangle into it to get the nutrients that way right that's correct yeah so think of one of those just stood up on stood up on its head haven't you guys didn't try um flood and drain or you know deep water culture or other stuff you just found yeah. this is most efficient or what do you do Evan flood or deep water, you can't do vertical. Simple as that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, gravity won't let uh, deep water to go sideways. <laughs> nope. Exactly. <laughs> deep water is also, unfortunately, deep water is also, they harbor more bacteria because the water's stagnant uh, and the and the the nutrient mix is uneven just due to weight of nutrients and water. So they're constantly deep water ones, unfortunately, have a higher risk of bacteria and pathogens. And uh, for food safety purposes, they're just not the best to be commercially scaled. Let's say, um, what if you have 10 plants in a vertical? The 10% I would think would get less nutrients because the other nine are sucking up things out of it. You know, let's say it's, I don't know, the top two are in like the, the flowering stage and they're taking a lot more of you know, nitrogen yeah. out, of the, out of the water. Yeah, and then the bottom ones are not getting it. That's a good question. So we actually have 36 plant spots per tower. So triple what you're talking about. And the question that you're asking is based on the assumption that water sits there and goes so slowly that 
somehow in the seconds or minutes that the plant is absorbing at the top that by the time it gets to the bottom there's nothing left so plants absorb nutrients very slowly so if you run water over it quick enough you can go from top to bottom and the plant at the top will never absorb remotely the amount of nutrients so that the plant on the bottom doesn't get any does that make sense? Like it's mm -hmm. the, the water. You need moving. a certain residence, residence time, residence time to pick up the nutrients. Right. So if you flow water faster than that absorption time, then you're going to be just fine. And so that's what you can see it. You know, if you ever look on our website, Eden Green, and you look closely enough, you'll see top to bottom. It's absolutely consistent top to bottom. It's because we flow the water so quickly that the plants have time to absorb but not enough time to absorb everything. Hmm, okay. Um, wh so what are your major inputs to the system? You know, you don't need any grow lights, it seems like, but I guess you need, you know, good amounts of fertilizer. Do you, are you able to take the water and let's say strip the nutrients out of it and recycle it? Or, you know, it seems like a water would be like a major input in nutrients, but what are yours and how do you deal with them? Yeah, so the biggest input is water. Plants transpire, right? That's how they live. The question that most people ask is, okay, how much water do you waste? That's a valid concern compared to a conventional farm. So conventional farm, 35 acres, call it, producing three harvests over the course of a year will waste roughly 800,000 gallons of water a year. Waste, not drink, waste. And that waste is usually runoff, contaminated with pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, you name it right? Anything that came from the air, environmental factors, uh, pathogens, bird poop, kind of everything, of it, all of the above. So compared to that, to produce the same amount of greens, the volume wise, we only waste 90,000 gallons of water a year. And if you think that's a lot, just know that each of our households on average wastes 45,000 gallons of water a year. So I can grow close to 2 million pounds of greens hmm. while only wasting two households worth of water in the entire year. That's amazing. Yeah. Do, you, do you have plans to try to reduce that even further just for either for vanity or for, you know, to make the project like completely amazing or it already is amazing, right? It already is amazing, but, but uh, we're always looking at ways to improve our water consumption and our water reclamation. So we already reclaim because the humidity levels are really high in a greenhouse. We already reclaim humidity from the greenhouse and reclaim that water and put it back into our system. We recycle the water. Uh, so it, our system is, is a closed loop so we can recycle it, filter it, put nutrients back in and, you know, clean it out and then use it all over again. And then we're also looking at ways of capturing rainwater, uh, it seems like a pretty easy thing to do. Like, oh, why don't we just use rainwater? Well, you mentioned something at the very beginning, which is bird poop, right? Mm. Any sort of animal defecation, any sort of uh, bacteria, anything that's that gets on the top of the roof will make its way into that rainwater. So then your rainwater is not so clean. Uh, so you've got to figure out a way to filter the rainwater even more so than you have to filter muni water, municipal water. So mm. useful. Um, environmentally advantageous, but actually it's, it's a lot harder than people think it is to use. Yeah. And I know rainwater, you know, well, we all know acid rain from years ago, but 
from what I've heard, the pH of rainwater can be, you know, five, five and a half, which I would think would be very bad for plants. They're right. You'd have to condition it quite a bit before you could use it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What other, um, any other, well, I'm sure there's a ton, but any other innovations I haven't mentioned that, you know, when you show them people, they're like, wow, that's super cool. You know, I, I think it's not an innovation, but it, it really comes down to if you ever go to one of our greenhouses and you taste the greens, they just taste phenomenal. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the knocks on our industry is these greens look great. They're expensive and they don't taste all that great. And it's because of the way folks are growing them. I mean, um, those, the flat tray greenhouses produce reliable, consistent greens, but depending on how you're growing them, they're just not getting the nutrient levels that they ought to get. And so the taste profiles are lacking. Uh, we've seen that with a lot of our peers. Compare that to ours. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's ever tasted any of our greens, whether it's lettuce or this amazing wasabi mustard green that we have or arugula uh, or even our lettuce and and uh, our cucumbers and our uh, we're, we're test growing celery. They just taste remarkably good. So I think that's the proof is in the pudding. And the, the, all the innovations in the world don't mean squat if you can't actually enjoy what you're eating. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you know anyone that's done a study comparing soil grow, grown plants versus uh, hydroponically grown plants in terms of nutritional profile? Yeah, you know, I've seen a couple of anecdotals. I haven't seen a really good, you know, party study on that. And it's something that we're planning to do actually is, is soil grown uh, versus hydroponic. What I will say is it's close enough from what I've seen, it's close enough to satisfy the vast majority of consumers, if not equal to. And I think, you know, pushback that we get a lot and you may hear it from some of your listeners is, well, what about organic? What about, you know, soil grown? The, the reality is to be arguing about or, organic versus conventional versus soil grown is missing the point because the vast majority of people cannot afford organic. They just can't. And so their only alternative is to grow, is to eat conventional. And little do they know, and most of the people do not realize this who are arguing for conventional farming, is that 90% of all of our lettuce nationwide comes from two spots in the United States. It comes from Salinas Valley, California, and Yuma, Arizona both going through super droughts, one of which is a virtual desert. And that's what we're getting our greens from. So I think there's this misconception among people of like, Hey, you know, you should be eating conventional because it's grown in this lush, you know, the lush plains of Indiana or Iowa or what? No, they're coming from a desert in Yuma and they're being shipped all the way to you, all the way to me. If you're on the East Coast, nine times out of 10, you're eating a 3,000-mile salad from Yuma, Arizona. I'm just going to tell you, that's not sustainable financially. It's not oh, sustainable yeah. environmentally. It's just not going to work long-term. So people can argue over organic soil grown versus us. And I just say like, hey, reality check. The soil, sense, grown, yeah. soil grown as we have it is just not sustainable. There's got to be a different way to grow. What- yeah, what what kind of um, plants can you grow in there that maybe are surprising? Since it's so tall, can you grow trees like fruit trees? You know, what can you grow and what can't you grow that you've evaluated in your yeah? Building? 
So um, we can grow over 200 varietals. We've tried everything from obviously lettuce and all sorts of leafy greens, cooking greens, collard greens, arugula, spinach, kale, chard, right? All the way to tomatoes, cucumbers, fruiting crops, blueberries. Um, we tend to stay away from, we and internally, we, 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 funny enough, we call them innies versus outies. We grow outies. Uh, things that that uh that have soft root structure, things that you know uh, just can that are not tubers, they're not grow, they don't are aren't buried, they don't have huge woody type stems and and root structure. So, well, we prefer to grow outies more than innies. I would think you know that's actually a really good good point, Richard. Is we're not a silver bullet for the ag industry. We're just we can grow some stuff really, really well at a competitive advantage and an environmental advantage to the conventional farmer. And it actually allows them to focus on things that are higher margin for themselves. It requires change, but it's it's better for them and better for the environment. So we're always researching and don't, you know, never say never. But if we alone stick to leafy greens, to herbs, to some fruiting crops, to some vining crops and flowers, we would be a massive, massive company. Yeah. I know this is not your your job and it's not your business model, but um, a good amount of the listeners on one of the podcasts, the Surviving Hard Times podcast, I always ask, you know, with likely coming food shortages and problems, what what can people do to at least get started? You know, I know that, you know, you can do a lot, you can't save the world, but from all you know, I can hear you, you've learned a lot of great things that maybe other people don't know. So what can you tell listeners that, Let's say they've never grown anything. They want to grow something. How can they dip their toe in or what could they do to at least give themselves some help with what's coming? Yeah, I would say uh, it is very easy if you have the space. I'm seeing more and more people convert their grass backyards into full-on gardens. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a there's a lot of merit to that, honestly, Richard. Like it. Uh, when you think about the water that you waste and you're seeing a lot of water shortages, especially west of the Mississippi, why would you want to spend that on grass when you could be spending it on on you know food that you can eat and that your neighbors can eat, right? So I would say it starts it starts in really rethinking the way that you're eating food and what that requires. And if there's things that you can grow at home that are just better for you and are more accessible, why would you not do that? Uh, I think the you know the step up from that is is you know getting together with your neighbors and starting a little community garden. There's there's so many resources for starting a community garden, and we actually ourselves give away a lot of seedlings for people to then take and then plant in their own their own gardens. So, but I think I think the, the base case is just start with something. Start with a a windowsill plant that can you know grow tomatoes and grow herbs or you know get get a raised raised garden and and grow your own grow your own lettuce grow your own cucumbers those are great great places to start okay yeah no that's excellent so uh where can people find out more about your work and uh you know these super tall greenhouses where can they go to see <laughs> pictures and and again find out more so you can go to edengreen.com uh, like gardenofedengreen.com is the best place to go on social media. It's all at Eden Green Tech. And then for myself, it's just my first and last name, Eddie Badrina. And I'm on I'm all the socials everywhere on that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Eden Green also sounds like Eaton Green. It's kind it of a does, doesn't it? Away. 
Yeah. You're not the first person to make that, uh, make that, that assumption and that, that jump. So maybe I may need to uh, get with my marketing team and get that URL of Eaton Green. Yeah. You could do like Eaton Green sponsors, Eaton Green. Yeah. That could be a whole nother bunch of products and things like that. So yeah. Exactly. Very cool. Well, Eddie, it's really great what you're doing. I love the fact that you're not just going along with typical, you know, as I said, sounds like too many times, shipping containers and just typical growing methods. It's really cool, really innovative. It sounds well thought out. And I appreciate you being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.